Welcome to Tech Talks, the technology podcast publishing on Mondays and Thursdays with David Savage. Jack Pierce. And this podcast is for the love of tech. Coming up on today's show, we are talking to Hugh Tatton-Brown from BT Defence. And then we're going to be having a conversation uh, from yesterday's Guardian. Can the tech sector thrive outside London? Hi, Jack. Good morning. Have you seen Elton John Lewis? Yeah, yeah, I have seen Elton John Lewis. Hashtag yeah. Elton John Lewis. Yeah. Currently trending on Twitter. Oh, you'd think it's the biggest advert of the year, isn't it, John Lewis? You see, I always think that the John Lewis advert thing is overblown hype and... The the one with the bear, the one with the penguin, I was penguin like, still makes me cry. Like, that is such the little boy gets a toy penguin for Christmas. Oh, yeah, okay, that was yeah. good. But the man in the moon, I was a bit man in the moon, no. yeah. But this, I have to say, is an excellent piece of marketing. It's an excellent piece of marketing. It's not very Christmassy. It is Christmassy. It's not Christmassy. Why is it not Christmassy? Well, because for two minutes you're going through Elton John's career with him, and yes. then at the end he opens a Christmas present. But does it not start with him in a room with a tree with lights on? Yeah, but I mean, anything in December is going to have that, you know? Like, oh, it's look. not everything, everything else around. Like, so the man on the moon wasn't the best advert, but the message behind that was as poignant as any of them. But the message behind this is brilliant, which is it's not the gift. It's what that gift could represent or the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And no, Which is fantastic. I, I suppose that message is good. Like, one gift can change your life, I guess. But let's be honest, we're not all Elton John. It's not very exciting, though, <laughs> is it? First of all... They've rehashed the, another Elton John song. Well, no, they no, used no, that no. song in the past. Who raps a piano? It's too hard. What's the point? And it's not like you can pick it up and shake it. The irony of <laughs> the, rap, the amount of wrapping paper used to wrap a piano when the most famous Christmas advert at the moment is talking about deforestation. Mm, palm oil. I know, I know. But, Unjustly um, banned from I, television. I still prefer the Iceland advert. So, because I like it. I, I like the fact that it's, it's, it's not too political. That's bullshit. Let's be honest. Like, we see adverts, um, we see adverts about violence, about crime, about loads of things. So I read, I, uh, I, I, I didn't read in detail, I'll be perfectly honest, but I skim read an article that was in Wired okay. pointing out why the uh, Iceland advert had inaccuracies. Oh. I kind of thought, bullshit. Yeah, like, what's the point? The whole where? point of an advert is you've got a minute and a half yeah. to get a message across. Yeah. Yeah. And the message is, we are destroying the natural world. Yeah. And if it gets it across in a way that resonates with people, and then they look into it and find out more information for themselves, isn't that the point? It yeah. doesn't have to be possibly the most factually... No. It would be a very boring advert. I well, mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that Elton John yeah. probably didn't get his first piano on Christmas Day. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the message that matters. And sometimes we can... Overcomplicate a little bit. I mean, who cares? If it had just been an hour, a minute and a half of saying we are ruining the rainforest, I'd still be buying into that. Like, fuck off, Wired. Oh, there's factual inaccuracies there. They're still doing the good stuff. Fern Gully is not factually accurate, but it still made an impression on me as a kid. There you go. Anyway. <laughs> Fern Gully. Fern Gully? You've not seen Fern Gully? What's Fern Gully? Oh dear, right. Listeners, please educate Jack. Uh, Listeners over 40 years old, please educate Jack. It's basically Avatar, but uh, yeah, if you watch Avatar, that's basically Fern Gully. I I mean, I got about 10 minutes into Avatar and gave up a bit. I thought it was rubbish. Well, there we go. Uh, (laughs) Getting back to technology. (laughs) Christmas tech. (laughs) Our guest on today's show is Hugh Tatton-Brown from BT Security. 
It's all about cyber, all about uh, the culture around cybersecurity within organizations and the industry as a whole. Please do stay tuned. After this uh, interview, we'll have a brief discussion about it, and we do have a news article, so plenty to listen to. And we'll try and keep this relatively Brexit-free. Hugh, thanks for taking a bit of time and having a conversation with us. Hi. It's nice to be sitting in, in BT with an informatics screen just to the side. Well, Which, I thought you wanted something to have a good look at. Yeah, well, no, it's very interesting. <laughs> so we are sitting in the, the, the BT showcase next to St Paul's. Yes. Uh, and you are part of uh, BT, but you're part of a particular part of BT. Yes. Do, do you mind just explaining what your role is, who you work for, and uh, first of all, just set the scene? Yeah, so I work in BT Security, where yep. Mark Hughes is the CEO of BT Security. And Mark wears two hats. So his job is around protecting BT, mm -hmm. um, both from a cyber and physical place, wherever BT is in the world, and we operate in 180 countries. Um, and then the other hat he wears, he runs the, the sort of business side of security. So all of the services and products and looking after our customers that we provide security services for. And that's been growing pretty quickly over the last few years. Yeah, it's been a very, very interesting, um, interesting time. I think, um, as everyone's seen, the security market as a whole is growing and people are realizing they need to stop thinking and doing things differently about security. Mm. And BT, with our expertise in running you know, the largest MPLS network in the world, running big customers, big services, understanding how they do, put us in a really interesting place with understanding actually how to do security rather than just sell security or rather than just do tech. We actually know how to do security. Obviously, there's been some really high-profile hacks recently. Um, Superdrug would be the, the latest one that kind of springs to mind. But do you, do you see a particular part of the market growing faster than other or others, or is kind of is, is security at an individual level growing as quickly as enterprise? Or you know, where where is that growth coming from? I think there's growth everywhere. Um, if you can find it, the key thing for any, and it's just sort of standard stuff. It's not about selling security, mm. but it's standard sort of knowing where the market is, knowing your customers. And the one thing with security is it's not standard yet. So whereas with network, you're, you know how fast you want to get from data A to B, and therefore if you can get it faster, you've got really simple pitch, everybody understands. Yep. Security, the attackers are always moving on. They're always doing something different. So there's no goalposts. The goalposts are constantly shifting, if they exist at all. Mm. So when you're talking about security with customers, you've got to put yourselves in their shoes very much in that type of that consultative, very close selling. Do you think the narrative is changing slightly with some of the emerging tech market? Because certainly at an early stage, one of the criticisms of, of the startup sector was that they weren't thinking about security at, at an early enough stage of their life cycle. And now that message seems to be seeping through to people. Oh yes, very much so. Um, now I think any sort of tech startup that hasn't got a security story, even about their very non-security product is probably you know behind the curve. Mm. Um, equally, the SME tech startup, the brain power has moved into security. Mm. So things are popping up, really innovative solutions. One challenge though I give to that startup community is they're all about tech. And tech is only part of the solution to security problems. So are they thinking about how, the, how customers will use them, what the benefits are, how simple it is to use, how simple it is to talk to other things? Because customers don't want hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of boxes on their desk. Operations can't deal with that many screens. Mm. How do they pull the stuff out of it? And if tech is turned on and no one's using it, it's as good as a Christmas tree. How has the relationship in the SME and enterprise sector changed in the last few years? Because I can remember kind of a few years ago, you'd, you'd find a, probably I don't know, six or seven years ago, you'd find a consultant to go into an organization, find the back doors, highlight the security risks available to them. And it was quite new and 
there was a maturity piece that had to be gone through at a C-suite level. And now you've got established security teams. And I guess they're not so willing to go, oh, hey, look, there's all these holes because they need to get on top of those issues. And, and whereas before kind of it was quite new and novel and they were trying to kind of stop being hacked, now the C-suite are probably terrified about what the consequences might be to their business. Yeah, I think this, that challenge, um, that cultural challenge between SOC operations and the people who are fighting the battle every single day compared with the C-suite and where their thinking is and the amount of time they're spending on security is a really interesting um, challenge at the moment. Um, yeah, for example, um, I hear lots of C-suite people who are running, thinking about security, talk about we want to be proactive, we want to be preemptive, we want to find out what's going on, go out there, go hunting, go with big data, use big data to find out what's going on, talk to people around this. Yeah, intelligence teams, find out what you've done, do proper intelligence operations. I think the challenge sometimes comes though when those SOC operations take that on board and then go out and find out something that's gone horribly wrong or something that's not quite right. Um, and then they get beaten up mm. by the C-suite because they found something beforehand. And so I think the challenge is for the C-suite is you know, to actually enable their teams to fail. You know, get that fail fast type piece, learn from what they're doing, take the lessons and move on. If you've got a red team that managed to break into a building because they tailgated someone, um, don't fire your security guard. Educate your security guard about what happened. I'm sure they won't let it happen again. Mm. You know, so that idea of a C-suite's not only got to talk the talk, but actually has to do it and enable their organisations to do it. Out of interest in that C-suite, and I know the kind of the the roles are all kind of drinking from the same watering hole to a certain degree, but are there particular roles? around that boardroom that you see as being real advocates of security more so than maybe others? Um, it's so difficult because as you say, um, on that C-suite, different people have different names, jobs, and do yeah, very yeah, different yeah. things. Um, at the moment, it's more personality driven. Right. And that's where I think it's got to change because you can have someone who talks it and has the right personality, who's got enough power around the board that they can allow their teams to make mistakes, they can insulate them, they can do pieces, they can talk about the story so they can explain it to their peers and their colleagues yeah. in a different way. Whereas you have others who are maybe from the good old fashioned operations type of point of view, which is if it's down, it's not good, up is fine, I want it quiet, I need to hold on to it always being up mm. and that's where it is. And there, you know, so it's about the personalities, I would say, more than the titles. How is public perception changing the response of, of enterprise organisations to, to threats? Because with the US midterms coming up, there's obviously been a lot of press in the last couple of days around the fact that, you know, is the result going to be valid? Is it going to be hacked? Can it be hacked? And I suppose if those questions are out there in the public domain, then people who maybe are unhappy with the result come November might claim that it's not valid. And that's quite damaging in itself that the public can suddenly mistrust what they're being told. How, how does an organisation respond to that line of thinking? I, I think we've got to have much more public discussion around this. So that, um, that example you gave there is an example of a much wider problem. And I think that is because cyber is now so commonplace. So if I went to you or to another organisation and said, so-and-so have been hacked, everyone's starting point will be, oh, another one. Oh, what are they doing about it? If you're in the industry, have they made any stupid mistakes type things? Mm. Whereas actually no one thinks about, are the attackers lying? How did they find out about the attack? Do they know it's true? You know, in, again, I'm not talking about individuals, but actually there are cases where people are sort of making stuff up mm. because the starting point for 
everybody, organizations, enterprises, SME, even people at home is, oh God, it's true, I must have been done over. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's where we need to have more conversations. We need to think about pieces. How do you genuinely know what's going on? No, that's interesting because I mean, if I think back to the Superdrug example, I was only reading a, an article yesterday where they said, "Oh, it's not us; it's other websites," which was wonderfully vague, but immediately shifts the blame away from themselves and 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 doesn't make it very clear. It's very opaque and and unhelpful, I suppose, to educating people about where where the issues are. Yeah, and um, again, I think it's about the challenge is, especially with digital transformation now, things are just getting more complicated. Mm. And more things you're having to trust, not just necessarily having more people in your organization, but you're having to trust more partners, more yep. technology, more potential AI, whatever that is, um, you know, big data, these things. You trust these things to do stuff. Yeah. Um, and therefore, knowing really what's going on, knowing what the truth is, even knowing what the facts are, is a real challenge. And I think that's where, you know, where people need to be thinking about. Organizations need to be understanding you know, who their partners are. What is their ch supply chain doing? I think they need to really push their partners and supply chain harder mm. about security and where they're working and pull the relationship much closer. You know, the typical supplier, um, supplier customer relationship, customer's always right, maybe doesn't work mm. in a security, a future security relationship where these um, instants and attacks can be so complicated if they're real and wait till there's a fake one. You can imagine the contractual arguments happening between supply and provider and it's not even real yeah I mean what's the answer and, and I know you can't provide an answer for this otherwise you'd probably be earning a lot of yeah. money but um, look when you're talking to your customers what is your advice to them to try and help manage this effectively because it's, it's not even helped at a state level I mean I was reading a, an article this morning about uh, Australia and talking about 5G networks and how they were banning ZTE and, and Huawei from the process and you mean like oh well it's because the Chinese and no one trusts the Chinese and you know I, I read plenty about technology but immediately I kind of just, just stopped reading because that line of thinking is already entrenched there so I suppose turning that round is really difficult yeah and I think there's two ways we need to go at this problem the first is that open discussion so if a country organization or someone doesn't want to use a partner explain what their rationale are and that rationale can't be just on the the, the, the truisms you know so and so is bad everyone knows they're bad or so yeah, and so yeah. is good everyone knows they're good you know, actually explain why and hopefully you know, explain why they are because that one will make the person who you're not using improve because they need mm. to fix it they need to do things differently equally that will explain why so and so is bad and we need to have those conversations. We need to sort of level set the piece. Um, equally, I think we need to have a discussion around what of in this cyber war, information war, we're fighting over. So previously, in good old-fashioned war fighting, you always were fighting over land, sea, air, and someone generally owned it because they had a flag on that base. And maybe it'd be a bit grey, but generally you're fighting over stuff. And it was all owned by countries, these bodies that people respected, people understood. The problem with information or cyber war is it's now fought on tech. And it's now fought on tech owned by private multinational companies. Mm. So how do you know who's winning? How do you know what's happening? How do you know what is the responsibilities of these companies these things are being fought over? Should we be thinking and should governments and you know, global bodies you know, enable this thinking? Because I don't think organizations can do it on their own. But should we be thinking of you know, the BBC news outlets as the front line, Facebook as the front line, 
Google, Twitter is the front line. And maybe big telcos like BT is the sort of mountains, the valleys, the sea that these things have been fought over, um, with banks being the supply chain. And should we have those sort of discussions? Again, it has to be led at the sort of public government level, government bases, because you're not going to get big organisations being out there. It's not their job to think. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, when, when, you're, when you're putting it in those terms, um, do you find the CISOs are responsive to that or leaders of, of, of security within organisations or are they unfortunately so entrenched in having to look at their what's in front of them right there and then that they don't have the, not the ability, but the, but the time to, to talk about things in those terms? Yeah, so that's, that's the one, one side of the solution is understand that at least and lobby and talk about that mm. and do that and change their discourse. The second one, which is a more realistic one, is understand your data understand what your data is, where your data is, how's it moving. As I said previously, you know, push more for your suppliers, make your suppliers partners. Sh try and share the risk, try and talk about what's going on. You know, for example, um, digital transformation is a hot thing. People are looking to move to cloud. Moving, some people sort of say, oh, the move to cloud is really good from operational reasons, cost reasons, this piece is, and some people say security, oh, it's terrible because it's not doing it. Other security people say, actually, it's far better to move your data to AWS because mm -hmm. their whole brand is reliant on them being secure. Yeah. So if they get a huge, huge hack in their back end, not necessarily because you configured it wrongly, but in their back end of Amazon, AWS, Azure, whatever, it's going to undermine their pieces, so they have to spend and be really good at security. So actually putting your data in there is probably more secure than having them on your own servers. But then what people don't think about is what the end-to-end -end piece is. Sure. So how is your data getting there? Who's carrying it? You know, if you thought your data was gold, you wouldn't carry gold in your pocket to the bank. You, wouldn't, you, you would think about how you're doing it. You could think about people attacking it on the way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking about that end-to-end -end problem. Well, look, it's a really interesting mindset. It's, a, it's obviously a big topic to debate, but thank you for, for sharing some views on it. With okay. us. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Right. Thank you. Right, there's a lot in here that I think is, is genuinely beautiful insight there's for, the, for, for startups and for the tech community as a whole. It's 13 minutes, but it really could have been half an hour, couldn't it? If you'd, if you'd have asked uh, Hugh to you know, dive deeper into some of his points, it could have gone on. Because, I mean, what charisma and what intelligence he's, he's got. Well, I, I like the point where he's talking about the C-suite uh, their, towards their attitude towards um, security. Uh, and that the C-suite needs to enable an organization and its teams to fail and learn, yeah. which is something that yeah. obviously we talk about more widely. But yeah. with security, um, obviously, there's a fear that if they fail, it's going to be wonderfully costly. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> you know, bad news. Uh, and the C-suite wants um, organizations to be proactive and, and as Hugh says, go yeah. hunting. Yeah. But the challenge is, is if a SecOps team follows that to the letter, and then they discover an error, they get beaten up. Yeah. And I loved his way of describing the idea that if you have a break-in, you don't fire the security guard, you try and educate. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that's a, that's a massive piece that whether you're beginning your startup adventure or you are in a, in a, in a C-level uh, position, I think uh, well, to educate over punish is what I put as the main point there. I mean, you, you will not have a good culture at your work if you fire someone if they make a mistake. You know, if it's a small mistake like leaving the milk out by the tea all day or it's a massive security risk to your business, you should still look to educate that person on what right to do rather than you're out the door, you're fired, Alan Sugar style. Um, and I think, yeah, you, you, 
especially with cybersecurity, there needs to be a level of patience and, as, as you guys on to say, uh, open collaboration and communication. And it, yeah, it ties into that point that he says, you know, cyber is now commonplace ah. um, and we need more more public discussion and yeah. to the point collaboration, I'd, 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 I'd suggest. Mm. You know, um, if there is a hack and it hits the paper, we go, oh, it's another one. And he says, you know, did they make a stupid mistake? That's the that's the assumption, and that company ends up being vilified yeah. and losing a lot of credibility. Talk talk, for example, sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. but we never stop to ask whether or not it's true. Yep, yep. And we are really quite naive. Well, we're already willing to jump down the throat of a of, of a big company we see day in day out and be like, <laughs> they're bolstered up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> funny. But it, it's it's it only goes to it only stands to reason that if that is our naive attitude. It doesn't help the C-suite yep. go, hang on, guys, calm down. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. Let's look at this and learn yeah. rather than shit's hit the fan. Yeah. Let's let's have some kind of reaction that uh-huh. publicly makes it look like we're doing something, Absolutely. which is just the, the worst thing that the, 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 the industry can do. There's a, there's a really pertinent point in here that he starts to talk about um, your partners and your supply chain and about how you go about making sure they're right and they're mm. safe. Um, I just want to put a message out there because my role, I have to answer a lot of security questionnaires with, with our IT team here about how we protect data and things like that. I just want to say now to all clients, sending out a questionnaire, asking a company to explain in words how their supply chain are compliant with security risks and stuff like that is not the way to go about doing it. Written word is seemingly, it's so hard to communicate your, your prevention preventions and risks and uh, mm. over email you need to be in a room and have a conversation with your partners and supply chains about this rather than 50 questions that an IT director can't be asked mm. to answer not our IT director he always helps me but you know what I mean uh, um, I also found it interesting uh, from a startup point of view that, um, that so a tech startup without security baked into their story or as part of their story is behind the curve. Now, is he sort of saying like, because when I heard that originally, I was like, does he, is he saying like it's good to have uh, a story where you've been hacked or you've had no, cyber as an issue? And I, I think I think what he's basically saying is if you are building something, yeah. you have to you have to think about security from day dot. Absolutely, and and yeah. let's be let's be straightforward. Where he says it's often all about tech, mm. it is. It's mm. about getting a product to market. It's the marketing. It's the audience. Mm-hmm. It's the platform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the makeup of a founder's team, it tends to be someone reasonably technical and maybe someone who's not even from the technology industry. Yeah. And they probably don't have any background in security between them. So security isn't there from day one. And I think it's really positive for him to say, you look, you will, you will be behind the curve and you need to think about this from day one. I think um, for me, if I was ever starting a startup, Dave, which, which we might do one day, you never know, I would immediately look, I'm not a numbers person, so I'd immediately look to have a, another person to cover the numbers because I'm, mm. I'm no good at maths. In that same mindset, people should be adopting that with cyber. If you're not a cyber expert, like I'm no money expert, yeah. I'm no cyber expert, they would be the people that I'd look to bring in straight away. But I love that he's also got that message that it has to be something that is easy to use and easy to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if it's turned on and it's not used, it's as good as a Christmas tree. <laughs> yeah. Which at this time of year is a very useful thing. Very relevant. But when we record it, uh, yeah. less important. Yeah, yeah. It makes, see, it's a Christmas podcast. It talks about a Christmas tree. I know. Just yeah. like Elton John Lewis is a Christmas advert because it has a uh, Christmas tree in the advert. Yeah, but you, you're right now, Die Hard, Christmas film or not a Christmas film? Definitely a Christmas film. Because it's, it's got, got a Christmas tree in it. And it's got a German with Ho 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 written on him. 
Yeah, I suppose so. There yeah. you go. Yeah, Definitely yeah, Christmas. Yeah. Um, anything else that you'd pull out from this interview? It's it's massive for um, for the whole tech industry or any startup industry. You need to talk and share about it. The article that we're going to talk about in a minute states that you can go to, in London. You can go to an event every night about how to pitch for funding. Mm. In London, you can go to an event every night about cybersecurity. Yeah. You can you can educate your shelves your shelves. <laughs> yeah, I'm Sean Connery all of a sudden. You can educate yourselves, and then it's your responsibility to educate your staff, other people, and so on. You need to be talking about cyber, otherwise you're going to get hacked. Yeah, and as as as, as Hugh. Hugh says towards the beginning of the interview, um, and I I, I I do love this point. Uh, it, it, security lends itself to consultancy. The yep. goalposts are always moving. Attackers are yep. always moving on. So it's not just a case of selling a service. No. Um, it's definitely a case of really working collaboratively and keeping that dialogue going. You, you've, you've got to remain adaptive as well because the hackers are. The hackers are adapting every day, right? Uh, last quick point before we go to our advert break. Yeah. Um, he mentions that he works for a guy called Mark Hughes. I'm hoping that unlike his Sparky. namesake, he doesn't just blame everyone else <laughs> yeah. for things. He, he just blames the regulation <laughs> that is all going wrong. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sure that is not like... Good old Sparky at Southampton. <laughs> Can't shoulder the blame for anything. Uh, no, right. he's got his plans doing it now. Yeah. Park Life, oh, Charlie Austin. <laughs> uh, time for our advert break. Stick with us after the after this short break. We will be talking about an article that was published in the Guardian yesterday, asking whether or not the tech sector can thrive outside London. Hi folks, Dave here. I wanted to let you know that we've teamed up with audible.co.uk and we're offering you a free audiobook. All you have to do is register for a one month free trial to claim your free audiobook, of which there are over 250,000 to choose from. It's a 30 day free trial. It means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel that trial period or not. Free piece of advice, if you're gonna try an audiobook, go for Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods. Anyway, Sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash tech talks. Back to the show. Welcome back to the show. We are now talking about an article in The Guardian. This is written by Mark Smith. It is sponsored by Cisco. Oh, yeah. not, not the thong no, song singer. No, no, no. no, no. I, I'm sure everyone doesn't immediately think of that. This they do. Although when I was at websites, <laughs> See? Uh, I saw a photo um, of Cisco and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm walking past the Cisco stand and someone replied to say, I didn't even know those guys still existed, which, bit damning. This is the news. Can the tech sector thrive outside London. Um, strap lines this, an appetite for collaboration is helping clusters across the north of England to flourish, but there are also key issues holding them back. Now, we are sitting in London. Yes. A lot of the people that we have on this show are London-based tech organisations. Yep. So often the show does have a bit of a, a, a London focus. Yep. Um, I think that's an issue that we have uh, as a country as a whole. At Definitely. The Definitely. Um, when we met Chi Onwara at Web Summit, uh, the MP for Central Newcastle, she pointed out that the um, the UK stand was very London centric. Yeah. Um, didn't mention anything to do with the regions. If you have a look at the fact that Tech Nation is actually just Tech City UK rebranded, yeah. it's very London centric. Yeah. Uh, and you know, forty percent of new tech startups are London based. So yeah. it stands to reason that 
the regions need promotion. We've spoken previously with the likes of Rashaw that there are some great hubs around the country. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's easy for especially a US-backed VC to be thinking, well, London makes the most sense. Mm. When in actual fact, when you start to consider the appeal of the regions, um, especially places like Manchester and Newcastle, it's cheaper. The talent is there. The talent is there because, you know, we, we know it's there because there is businesses thriving there. Mm. Um, it's just about, I, I suppose, uh, an attractive piece. Like London is the best city in Europe. We know that. We, oh, but... Mm. Okay, go, go on. on. No, 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 because no, it is, though. It is. People don't... People rarely emigrate to, I don't know, Madrid for their career. People, they, people rarely imagine. emigrate anyway. to Munich or Berlin. You know, London... Carry on. Anyway, before I... Yeah, I... I, I, I that's fine. But it's... And the article actually... I'm dribbling now. The article actually mentions this access, which I think is, is the main thing. It's not the fact that it's... That, yeah, and access leads to collaboration. The access to capital, growth space, blah, 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 blah. I think the thing is that... <clears throat> we've spoken about this, as I mentioned, Rushshaw. Um, mm. A regional centre needs a specialism. Okay? Yes. So, Belfast, Cyber. Cyber, yep. Yeah. Uh, Birmingham... Automobile. Oxford's AI, right? They've got a lot of AI in Oxford. Uh, Cambridge. I'm not entirely sure off the top of my head. But um, Trade Tech, for example, would be a great opportunity. And this is a bit of a spoiler or trailer for Monday's show. Mm. On Monday's show, we're talking to public. They've um, got a report out about frictionless trade. Mm -hmm. And that talks about Trade Tech, which is technologies around ports and borders. Okay. I did say no Brexit, so I'll keep this apolitical at the minute, but we'll dive into this in a bit of Brexit. Of course. Brexitology detail on Monday. but ports at the minute, the value um, of that industry is three billion. By twenty thirty, that's going to accelerate thirteen billion. Import and export sort of thing. Uh, just just the amount of trade that, are, yeah. that is coming through a port. Oh, wow. um, and there are sixty five tech companies that are specialising in that area around the world. Eighteen of them are UK based. Now, if you have port technology, it stands to reason that that should probably be based in Dover or Portsmouth or Teesside, or Glasgow, Harwich. or Newcastle. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, Do it for Essex, don't worry. So there are definite examples where I think regional, um, regional hubs can act as real innovation centres if they have the access to the funding, if they have the access to talent. It's, it's a bit of a circle, isn't it? It's a bit of a merry-go-round. Who does what first to enable this? But Lon- my point being that London isn't necessarily always the best place to be. If, no. you've, got, if you've got a genuine hub in a city yeah. that's specialist in something, then surely you go there because the collaboration for that particular piece of technology is going to be stronger. But then it's a responsibility on the initial investor to... St- to, to push those locations, or if you're sat here in London anyway, regardless, you've been to university, you're still living in London. The article says you need to get people not moving down to London straight after university, but if you've got that already, then how is it, and you're a, you're a founder of a, of a port trade, whatever, a tech trade, whatever it was called, would you then move your whole life up to a port town? I, no, I, I, so. I think I the responsibility here falls to cities and local yeah. meds. So um, you, could ask, you could reasonably ask the question that, are states having a bit of a crisis moment at the moment? Mm-hmm. If you look around the world and the rise of populism, you could argue, yes, they're not meeting the demands of populations as a whole. But at a city level, you're seeing a lot of very powerful mayors push agendas like the Paris Accord in America. Mm-hmm. Lots of city mayors have signed up to that. And um, 
I think beyond that, when it comes to technology, the, the report that we'll talk about on Monday, the Tees Valley mayor mm. openly talks about the fact that he wants to model um, Tees Valley on, on cities like Rotterdam and bring a bring, um, community of, of innovators and investors into the area. And I think that yeah. is yeah. where the responsibility lies. Now, yeah. this article talks a little bit about... Um, you know what, some of the some of the issues. Access to capital, you've mentioned, that is a problem. Um, access to growth space, they say, is a bit of a problem. They say access to second generation mentorship, access to talent, and I take issue with that. Yeah, I take issue with that last point. Because the point previous, definitely, but access to talent, I know that's not true. We know that's not true. We've got thriving offices in Leeds, Manchester, and Newcastle that regularly place tech. People, yeah, what know. I'm glad is they, they, they kind of raise it as a, as a question mark and, and say that there's a lack of um, possibly developer talent, but CTOs, CMOs, CPOs. It's then, it's then counted further in the article where it says, well, actually, you've got Sky Bet in Leeds. Yes. Um, and Channel 4 is moving to Leeds. And, oh, really? Well, yeah, it was announced, uh, what, last week? They were moving the headquarters to Leeds. You've got BBC in Manchester. Yeah. yeah. And that drags talent pools to those local yeah. regions yeah. Um, and actually uh, through the podcast when we were up in Leeds for the CIO Watercooler we were talking to companies like Infinity Works yeah. who are growing very rapidly in those regional areas so there is talent there to, is talent I mean to, there's there's a talent issue around the world you know it's, hmm. there's a talent issue out there if you go read my article posted on LinkedIn you can find out how to navigate around the talent war but there is a talent yeah. shortage everywhere I think there's a very fair point, though, made around salary expectation. That if you're based Definitely. in the southeast, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it is completely uh, unrealistic of you to imagine that you're going to get the same salary that you've had in London if you moved to Newcastle, right? Yeah. So six-figure, mid-six-figure salary in London is probably going to be a high five-figure salary in Newcastle, and people go, "Well, I'm not going to take a sixty-grand pay cut." They fail to recognise that in my hometown. Uh, you can't buy anything for over three hundred thousand pounds. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, like yeah, yeah, you yeah, have to think about yeah, the local economy. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the fear is is that if you make that move north, you probably can never make the move back to the southeast. That, that's a tricky one, I guess. Well, yeah. If you, yeah. If you buy a house no, in, the, yeah. in the northeast yeah. and you take that drop down, yeah, moving be, back to yeah. the southeast is nigh on impossible. Yeah, it's. It's, it's a it's a one way road. Who's uh, what? How do you, how do you address that though? Because pro London property prices is never going to go down. Are they? Let's be honest. Not unless something drastic yeah. happens in the economy over the next generation yeah. where, I don't know, remote working really takes off and well, you don't well, have to be based in London or something like that. We'd, we'd need a change in government. Or, no, or, or, or a real restructure of, yeah. of, of the idea of um, the employee-employer relationship, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, if it does mean that we can work in silo more and that, that happens, then so be it. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And I think... That's a hard one to address. And, but then my argument for that is, well, then develop that talent internally. We know you can get access to talent. Grow that talent internally to then be your CTO. Yeah. You know, that, that, should be, that should be your goal as a business anyway, yeah, to, yeah. to drive that internally progression. There is something else here that I want to take issue with. Go on. Um, Vimla Apadu, uh, the service designer at FutureGov. Yes. Um, before we recorded, I actually had a quick look at her LinkedIn profile. I, she obviously knows what she's talking about, right? Of course. And she makes some accurate points here, but I do, I do want to just counter slightly. So, this is what the article Me says. Too. Yep, yep. Some participants argued that being based outside London makes it easier to collaborate with other businesses. The more open northern attitude and the smaller nature of its towns and cities gives a distinct advantage over the capital. 
Um, because there are smaller cities connected across the north of England, you get a real sense of community. You get to understand what's going on across the region. London is a bit too big to get under the skin of that. Across the north, you can know all the startups and all the founders and what the events are, and you can get involved. Right, now you're shaking your head. She makes some fair points here. Absolutely. People are, whether you want to admit it or not, they are more open in the north. They yep. are more open to a conversation than they sure. are in the southeast. Sure. There is a cultural difference. Sure. Right? And the towns themselves are smaller. They are smaller yep communities what it what it also ignores and one thing that frustrates me about the way that people talk about the north more generally yeah. is that Newcastle to Manchester is a fucking big journey yeah. right it's huge. and it's not it's not a mountain range but the Pennines is a fairly significant <laughs> yeah. natural geographic yeah. barrier that actually makes some of that collaboration quite difficult yeah. and whilst London is very big and it is probably difficult to know the entire tech community actually it's quite Concentrated. Focused. Yes. Yeah. And you can bump into people. Yeah. And it's very easy to get to a lot of events very, very easily after work. Like if I wanted to go to an event in Shoreditch or West London or the or, or Canary Wharf or the West End tonight, yeah. Yeah. I can very easily without much planning. If I wanted to attend an event in Leeds or Manchester when I'm based in Newcastle, yeah. it's not gonna happen. No. Because it takes three hours to get to Manchester from Newcastle. Yeah. It's yeah, it's uh, that, that wasn't the point I slightly disagreed with. I, I think she says, like we say, London is too big to get under the skin of that. Mm. I kind of disagree with that. I, and I also, I mean, I do hear what you're saying. Up north, it is just a nicer place. But I think... With, uh, <laughs> yes, it is. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> I've chosen to live in the southeast. So I, think I, sh- I will be accused of hypocrisy. No, that's not at all. But I think, like, generationally speaking, as millennials grow up and as Gen Zs grow up, there is more of a collaborative, more of a, a kinder air in these generations. You know, you've got younger people growing up with... Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's unfair to, to say that London is an unfriendly place. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. But in, in, in many places, it's very unfriendly. But that's not that's the same with any city. I think you, you can Sorry, get under... She doesn't say that. No, she doesn't say that. That was no. you. <laughs> she says that yeah, 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 a yeah. more open northern yeah, attitude, yeah. which I would subscribe to. Totally. But I do think London isn't too big. I, I do think that we are con- we're in concentrated hubs across London and the community that we've grown, the community that our business has grown, the community that other people have grown, leads me to believe that you can bump, like yeah, say, yeah. bump in someone yeah. around the road. Look, to wrap up, because I'm not entirely sure we've made any pertinent points yet. No, but it's a really good article. <laughs> you should read the article yourselves, listeners, because it is a really good one. To wrap up, I, I think that the opportunity to um, invest in north of England is absolutely huge. And not just north of England. Let's not forget the southwest and places like Bristol. Yeah. And Ireland, Northern yeah. Ireland, rather, and uh, Scotland. Yeah. And possibly even Wales. Oh, Scotland, they're doing great tech. I think they're doing okay. good stuff going on. Like um, so, you know, tech can thrive in regional areas outside of London 100%. But I think the key for us, yep. is that you have to, if, you, if you're going to be successful, you have to have a niche and a hub. Yeah. You cannot compete with London and just say, we're going to be another tech hub. Well, it's, not yeah. gonna it's not going to happen. But if you take trade tech, for example, and you say is Tees Valley, we're going to be the centre for an open um, trading marketplace that attracts investment and companies, that can work. And I think that's, that's where the leap 
needs to be in making sure that the tech sector thrives outside of London? Uh, there, there's plenty of tech to carry and run with as well. London is very sort of, uh, seemingly at the moment, blockchain and fintech-y, right? It's very, mm. That's what seemingly is the specialism here. Which makes sense, because if, yeah. you, if you're thinking about a, a, a hub for London, then yeah. it's the finance capital of the world, so fintech totally. makes sense. Yeah, totally. So what's, what's Liverpool City? What, you know, every, every city has got a unique value proposition and they will have unique tech propositions. Find out what that is, learn that, and then grow that technology, that specialism in your city. And then guess what? San Francisco VCs will be calling you up in no time. Yeah. Don't hold me to that. I've got some rude jokes about Liverpool there, but I'll keep them to myself. Anyway, um, <laughs> do listen to the show on Monday. We've got... Uh, Johnny Hugo from Public, he is talking about frictionless trade. Blends quite nicely into You've done this on purpose, haven't you? you? You're so seamless with your episodes stitching together at the moment. Absolutely not. Going. No, but uh, that'll be very interesting. Uh, it will address some of the points about Brexit, actually, uh, both pro and negative. We're going to try and remain fairly balanced um, in some respects. Mm. Um, but until then, have a lovely weekend. And by the time we talk to you, we may even have a new leader of the country. Ha! <laughs>